0: You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. I think we've all heard the expression, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Perhaps you've actually used it before yourself. You say to someone, give it to me straight. I want to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, friends, as we continue our study of the doctrine of the church, the Bible's teaching about this institution called the Church of Jesus Christ, that's what I want to do. I want to give you not exactly the good, the bad, and the ugly, a little bit of adjustment. I want to give you the ugly, the glorious, and the good about the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we're picking up uh, in the middle— Uh, Last time I had three topics in this area of ecclesiology, or the Bible's teaching about the church. I wanted to talk about the nature of the church, the origin of the church, and the sheer immensity of the church of Jesus Christ that's being built uh, by His Spirit here in the earth. So today, I want to add three more topics. Uh, I'm going to start Not my favorite uh, subject, but I'm going to start with the corruption of the church. Then I want to transition directly to the glory of the church. And then I want to conclude with the vital importance of the church in our salvation. So let's start first with the ugly, uh, because I think we just need to go there and uh, to take a very honest look. Uh, at this institution of the church uh, here in the world, this side of glory. Folks, I suspect I don't need to tell you that the church of Jesus Christ has many critics. And the problem with much of that criticism is, well, uh, it's valid. Much of it, at least, is valid. There are countless examples of the church failing to live up to its calling from Christ. And in the place of that faithfulness, we know, don't we, of credible accounts of hypocrisy and scandal and abuse and heresy and the like. And I suspect that uh, in various ways uh, among my listeners, there could be testimonies given to any number of these things if you've had experience of life in the Church of Jesus Christ for any length of time. It would not necessarily be profitable, but I think those testimonies uh, could be given. I preached a few years ago through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I think that may be one of the best examples, in the New Testament at least, of the corruption of the Church. Uh, It's a true Church. Paul is writing to a genuine Congregation of the Lord Jesus, but oh, how they are broken in so many ways. So he starts out that whole uh, magnificent letter to the Corinthians saying, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now that's a wonderful introduction. He identifies them as the church of God that is in Corinth, and he speaks of them as sanctified in Christ Jesus, but also called to be saints. But then, if you are familiar with this book of the New Testament, Paul has to go on to deal with all kinds of problems. There's bitter infighting in the Corinthian church. There's blatant disregard for the weak and for the poor, In the midst of that congregation, there are scandals of sexual immorality. Um, There's even, in the lives of some of the members of the church at least, participation uh, in pagan worship services, and the list could go on. Uh, Those are the ones that Paul begins the letter by calling saints, which is a biblical term for those who are set apart by God— from the world in the church. But there's a lot of the world in the church there in Corinth. And there is a lot, consequently, not to like about the church as we come to get to know it uh, in that Corinthian correspondence. Now, why would this be so? Why is the church something that can be, in some cases, rather dramatically Uh, corrupted. Well, a couple of explanations uh, we should note. Um, First, let's just be real about this and uh, honest about this, about ourselves, folks. Every Christian lives to some degree in contradiction with who he or she is in Christ. That's true of us individually, and that would also then be true of us as a community. Paul in Romans 7 says rather famously, I do not do the good I want, but evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He's talking here about this contradiction between who he actually is in Christ and how he ends up behaving as he succumbs to various temptations and sin. So folks, in all humility, the church as a whole is a lot like what each of us as individual Christians is like. We can personally and individually be quite a mess as Christians, can we not? And so the church as a whole can be, as a community can also be. But there's a second thing that needs to be noted as an explanation for why the church can become so corrupted um, in our day, and that is that not every member of the church is a true Christian. Not all who claim to be Christians are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and Uh, So, undergoing the transformation that he works towards greater and greater God-likeness. And so, with time, it becomes clear that there are members of the church who are Christian in name only. That's something we see the apostles aware of. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, now in the second letter to Corinth, chapter 13, he says, "'Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith.'" test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? John in 1 John 2 speaks of those who are part of the church, but because they don't actually have the reality of a saving relationship with Christ, they eventually abandon the church. And he says in verse 19 of 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, friends, these are the reasons why the church can be sometimes uh, such an embarrassment, frankly, to us as Christians. Uh, there can be so much uh, that is impure about even true churches of Jesus Christ. That's all very distressing, but folks, uh, let's remember that it is also part of God's plan, this side of glory. I'm going to uh, reference one of our early church fathers, St. Augustine, as he's called, writing in the 5th century, Uh, This is something that he grappled with, the impurity of the church, the corruption of the church in various ways, and uh, he uh, articulated for the church ever since uh, the teaching of the Bible that this side of glory, that is in fact the way it will be. The church will be what Augustine called a mixed Society. There will be many within the church that have responded to the call of the gospel. They have therefore been included in the community of those who are following Christ, yet they've never actually experienced what we talked about in our very first class the double cure of salvation. Now, Augustine realized there is a process by which the church cleanses cleanses itself of false professors. Uh, It's a process called church discipline, and we'll be uh, returning to that a little bit later in this class. Uh, But his point, and my point just now in referencing Augustine, is that we're not ever going to be able to secure a perfect church in this life, Uh, one in which there's 100% uh, pure, grade A, genuine believers only. And Augustine actually makes the point that if we try to do that, if we try, by our leadership and administration of the church, uh, to have a 100% pure church, an uncorrupted church, uh, we are going to be in the position of wronging uh, some of the very people that the church is intended to be a blessing to. Uh, here's what I mean by that. Augustine appealed to the parable of the tares and the wheat in Matthew 13, and you remember uh, how that parable goes. Uh, There is um, a master and a field and his servants plant uh, wheat in the field, but an enemy comes and plants tares, which are weeds, alongside of the wheat. We read in Matthew 13, verse 28, the servants say to the master, do you want us to go and gather them? That is to say, gather all the tares up out of the field of wheat. Master said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Augustine appealed to that parable, and he saw in his day people willing to, Uh, to, as it were, uproot genuine stalks of wheat in their zeal to create a perfectly pure church. And he um, spoke against that and had a very realistic view of the nature of the church, again, this side of glory. Now, at Resurrection Presbyterian Church, we are not uh, content with uh, corruption and impurity. That's not the point that I'm seeking to make here Uh, Here's a couple of the points, uh, mindful of this um, realistic view of the church uh, that I've laid out and that is biblical. Here's a couple of implications of that for our local congregation, and number one, it is that we have a realistic view of church membership. So folks, here's what is required to be a member of Resurrection Presbyterian Church, a simple profession of faith nothing more. And uh, on top of that, we allow and uh, indeed consider the children of those who make profession of faith also to be members of the church with their parents. Now, uh, we're aware that church membership doesn't equal personal salvation. Uh, And there will always be members of the church who, in fact, need themselves to be saved. Now, That doesn't mean we live in suspicion of each other, Uh, we look askance at each other. No, actually, we give one another as members of the church the charitable benefit of the doubt. We regard each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. But folks, we also consider it deeply sad and not utterly uh, unusual to see members of the church live lives in the long run that don't match their profession. You know what that means? Uh, It means that our ministry of the gospel is not just for those outside the church. It continually is a ministry that we uh, extend to those inside the church. We live with one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God, and when that uh, time comes, when the life is in such contradiction with the profession, we realize that's a member of the church that actually needs the gospel itself. So we have a realistic view of church membership, but I also want to say we have a hopeful view of God's grace being at work even in corrupted churches. Uh, last time I talked to you about worldwide Christianity as something that is quite immense, and most um, historians and students of worldwide Christianity uh, would agree that there are three main branches or traditions of Christianity in the world. There is the Roman Catholic branch, there is the Protestant branch, and there is the Orthodox branch, capital O, Orthodox. Those are the three great traditions within a historic Christianity. Now, those traditions are divided over some pretty major Doctrinal issues. Uh, as a Protestant, for example, I see major errors and spiritual abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't want to hide that fact from you. But as a Protestant and as a Presbyterian, I can also recognize that God is at work in saving ways in the Roman Catholic Church, even though that is a tradition that, as I see it, is deeply corrupted in some very important ways. For that matter, um, our own Presbyterian denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Uh, Many years ago, parted ways with the mainline Presbyterian Church over some major doctrinal issues. But I will say to you that I have encountered evidence over the years that as deeply corrupted as uh, I consider the mainline Presbyterian Church in America to to be in our day, in some ways even as corrupted as the Roman Catholic Church— I see that God is still able and willing to work his grace, even in some of the most broken of church settings. It reminds me of the days of the tribes of Israel, uh, when the northern kingdom had been separated from the southern kingdom, uh, and Israel worshipped Yahweh by means of idols. They worshipped by means of the golden calves. That is as fundamental, you might say, a violation of the law of God as any. As you read the Old Testament, as corrupted as that segment of the Old Testament church was, the northern kingdom, we see throughout the Old Testament God at work uh, within those northern tribes. And despite all of that corruption, he's willing and able to bring gracious fruit to bear in the lives of uh, of his people within it. I, uh, I'm humbled by this, and I am encouraged by it, brothers and sisters. God is able and willing to do his gracious work in some pretty grimy circumstances. From Old Testament Israel, uh, to the church at Corinth, uh, to the wide variety that there is in the church of Jesus Christ in our day, in many ways, to varying degrees, corrupted as a church and yet a place that God is still willing to do his work of grace. So uh, that's the ugly. I wanted to start with that and get it over with in this particular episode. Let's move from the ugly about the church to the glory of the church. Because, folks, for all the mess, the Church of Jesus Christ practically is in the clear teaching of the Bible— is that the church is God's plan A for glorifying himself and for advancing his kingdom in the earth, and folks, there is no plan B. <laughs> I love to uh, say it that way. I think one of my mentors uh, was uh, the first to for me to hear say that uh, the church is God's plan A for glorifying himself and advancing his kingdom in the earth, and there is no plan B. That's What makes the church, for all of its uh, impurity, glorious? Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to this statement by the Apostle Paul about the church. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, listen, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is quite a status that God has actually given to the church. Yes, the church, our church, the church that has all of its warts and wrinkles. Paul goes on later in the same chapter to say, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, folks, not only did you hear the apostle talk about God receiving glory in the church, for reasons I still scratch my head at, he actually speaks of that glory coming to God in the church first, and then he says, and in Christ Jesus. You might have expected him to actually put it in the other order. But of course, in fact, they are inseparable. Uh, glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus is building his church unto the glory of the Father. So I, I could put this glory of the church from God's perspective in terms of this question. Folks, what is at the center of human history. Uh, if you ask the average historian, they might uh, talk about the th- great figures of world history and uh, perhaps um, the great battles that are fought or the nations that rise and fall under those great uh, men and the battles that they fight. This is t- typically how historians uh, think of what's at the center of human history, but. From a biblical perspective, from that Ephesians 3 perspective, history is actually uh, centered on what looks like at times like an insignificant band of God's people. It's really about the struggle between God and Satan for the church. The history of the world is really about the building up of the church of Jesus Christ as a way of advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So folks, that's where the glory is. It's the fact we take by faith on the authority of the word of God that the church is God's masterpiece in the earth. It is his greatest work uh, manifested in the redeeming of sinners from uh, slavery to Satan. It's in the church that his new creation is, has begun and will eventually uh, be as wide as the curse is found. It's through the church that Christ advances his kingdom. And, folks, it's in the church of Jesus Christ that God dwells, being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, as the apostle would say. Now, folks, that's that's glorious. One of my favorite books on Uh, The Doctrine of the Church is a book called The Glorious Body of Christ by a man named R.B. Kuiper, K-U-I-P-E-R. That is uh, a survey of the biblical teaching of the church, but I love the title of it because it keeps in front of us the fact that even though there's so much that is amiss in the church, so many things that are wrong with the church today, it is at the center of all that God is doing in the world. Uh, and it is where, it, it is the apple of his eye, as he says through one of the prophets. So, what are the implications of that for our life as members of Resurrection Presbyterian Church? Well, number one, my friends, by the grace of God, we will never become ecclesiastical cynics. You probably met such a person that's someone who's, well, maybe been burned by the church, or maybe they've just seen the church at its worst, and as a result of their experience of that, they've come to have a very cynical or jaundiced view of the church. And of course, uh, many such people just give up on the church, but others just become sort of in-house critics of the church— uh, they're critical of this, that, and the other in their own local church. Or if they're not cynical about their own local church, they're cynical about just about every other church in town. Folks, that's not a, a God like perspective on the church. At Resurrection, we're seeking to see in the church what God sees in her. These are the people for whom God died. Acts twenty twenty eight. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to the Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church is the bride of Christ, Paul tells us. The church is the beloved an intimate companion of Christ. And so we will not become cynics um, as we consider the church in all of our realism. And by the grace of God, secondly, we will be as devoted to the church as God is. Folks, if Christ is himself so committed to his church, if it's at the center of all his work in the world, then that should be true of us. We should be committed to the church, and it should be, the church, the center of our uh, great labors for the kingdom. I love this hymn uh, that is found in our tradition, uh, and the stanza that goes, I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. This is a wonderful expression of what every Christian should have as a whole set of his heart, devotion to the church of Jesus Christ. When I came to Resurrection Presbyterian Church, Now, about 27 years ago, I preached a series on the biblical teaching of the church, and during the course of that series, I made this statement again and again, commitment to the local church is the single greatest outward indicator of your commitment to Christ. I made that statement several times in the course of that series, and I've made it countless times since then, and friends, I still believe it with all of my heart. I think that accurately reflects the biblical teaching about how important the church is in God's eyes, and thus, how central the church is in our own devotion to Christ. Remember what Jesus asked Peter after Peter had shamefully betrayed him, and Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I do love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think Jesus was doing with Peter, was saying, I want you to prove your love for me in your devotion to my people. I think he says that to every last one of us as Christians. Do you love me, Christian? Do you love me? You prove it by your own devotion to the people that I'm devoted to, that I've given my life too so those are implications of this second element of the biblical testimony that the church is glorious in god's eyes glorious for what it is already but also glorious for what it is becoming and what it most certainly will be as god brings about a completion of all his work in and through jesus christ So there's one more subject that I want to take up uh, in this vast and important subject of the Bible's teaching about the church, and that is the good. (laughs) Uh, We talked about the ugly. We talked about the glorious. Now let's talk about the good of the church, which is to say the vital importance of the church in our salvation. We live in a society that views the church at best as a mere accessory. Actually, uh, this is true of the Christian um, of the Christian church itself. This is one of the broken <laughs> uh, signs of brokenness of the church. Uh, there are many in our culture who would consider themselves spiritual but not religious, quote unquote. There are many who call themselves Christians, but they're not. Churchgoers. Now, is there something wrong with that? I hope by now, in this uh, set of reflections on the biblical teaching of the church, I hope you can see there is something very, very wrong with that. The church is not a mere accessory to the Christian life, as if you could have it in your life and it would make certain things uh, better for you in your Christian life, but then again, it's not indispensable because it's a mere accessory. It's not the way the Scripture speaks of the church. Uh, It's far more important, and it's important even unto the experience of salvation in all that salvation entails. Now, as I make that point and seek to argue that point for anyone who might be initially uh, skeptical of it, I'm going to appeal to a church father, another church father, in this case named Cyprian. Cyprian uh, lived even earlier than St. Augustine. Uh, he lived in the 3rd century. He was <clears throat> bishop of Carthage in northern Africa. He was a man born into a wealthy, non-Christian home. He converted to Christianity and then became uh, such a, a lion heart for the Christian faith that he uh, incurred the wrath of the Roman Empire, uh, who was persecuting Christians. Uh, And Cyprian ultimately gave his life uh, for his Christian faith. He was beheaded uh, by the Romans. During his day and during his ministry, Uh, There were professing Christians who came to have a low view of the church, and I won't bore you with all the details of the controversy of Cyprian's day, but Cyprian became famous and to this day is well known for his warning against cutting yourself off from the church if you hope to be saved. Here are some of the most famous words that Cyprian ever penned. He said this, He can no longer have God for his father, who has not the church for his mother. Now, I wonder how that lands on your ears. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, I know the church is a good thing. I know it's even an important thing. But can we really say that participation in the church is on the level of importance as salvation itself, that they are tied in some way, salvation and being part of the church? Well, I want you to listen carefully to the metaphor that Cyprian is using here, and the answer to the question really lies in this metaphor, the church as our mother. Cyprian says, he can no longer have God for his father, who has not the church for his mother, Now, folks, that metaphor of the church as our mother is a theme that comes up not just in the early church fathers, it comes up in our Protestant Reformation fathers, Cyprian in general, and that particular quote in particular shows up in John Calvin and his writings, for example, what men like Cyprian and Calvin were doing. As they spoke of the church as our mother and as vital to our salvation as a mother is, they were thoughtful and mindful of the role that God has ordained the church to have in our spiritual nurture, in our growth in grace. So listen carefully, please. God alone gives spiritual life to any sinner. This we are quite clear about. But it is also God's plan that this life that he himself gives be sustained and be nurtured in us by means of the community of the church. That's the sense in which our church fathers were speaking of the church as every Christian's mother. Mothers are ordinarily indispensable to a child's life and growth. Uh, I talk about this in uh, one of my classes at Greyfriars Classical Academy, and I use this illustration. I don't know how much longer I'll be able to use it, but I say, uh, folks, it's medically possible to be conceived as a human being in a laboratory. I I, um, I have that on good testimony. I haven't seen it, of course, but I grant that it is um, possible. But here's my observation It may be possible to be conceived uh, in a laboratory as a human being, but thus far, unless I'm very mistaken, it has proved impossible to bring a child to full viability apart from a mother's womb. I hope it will never be possible to do that. I hope there will never, with all of our medical and scientific engineering, I hope there will never be a time when that is not impossible. So, in that illustration, what I'm wanting to say, and I think this is faithful to what Cyprian meant in that famous statement, yes, it is possible, indeed, gloriously, it is possible to be converted, to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, far from a local church, far from a pew, far from a sermon, uh, far from a hymn. You could be Uh, all by yourself, alone in a uh, hotel room with a Gideon Bible, for example, and come to saving faith. We all recognize, gloriously so, God can save in all manner of circumstances. But we're simply saying, in addition to that, it is not ordinarily possible for such a new Christian to grow and thrive as a Christian apart from the church. That's what Cyprian meant. Uh, You can be saved. You can be uh, the recipient of grace uh, outside of the church. Indeed, that's what uh, evangelism and missions often entails. But the great concern of an evangelist, the great concern of a missionary is to bring brand new Christians into the womb, if you will, of the covenant community, that we've called the church, uh, because it's God's plan to nurture that life, to preserve that life, and to grow that life in the church. I think this is taught in some of those amazing passages in the scripture that compares the church to the body of Christ. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members— And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. I'm sure that illustration from Corinthians uh, of the church as a body and As the body of Christ is familiar to many of my listeners. And perhaps uh, you think of that as um, the way that the apostle is illustrating the fact that in the church, everybody has their particular role, their particular gifts, and their particular part to play. Well, that is, in fact, what Paul is saying. But I want you to understand that Paul has something even more profound that he's conveying by this image of the church as a body with many members— joined together under Christ. There's something much more profound, and it's this. The life that we have in Jesus Christ as Christians is a life that we share. And the sharing of that life of Christ is something that depends over time on our connection with the body. Paul uses the human body as an illustration of the church, and in doing so, he's doing more than just pointing out that there's various coordination that's needed for the various parts to work for the good of the common uh, whole. He's actually emphasizing that the various parts of the body of Christ are dependent upon each other and their connection to one another as they share in the life of Christ. Now, what a blow that is to the individualism, uh, of our day in our particular society, it 's an amazing testimony to the vital importance of a real connection with the local church <clears throat> to appeal to a well admittedly somewhat grisly uh, illustration. Uh, this is how it is with our human bodies. If you cut off a limb from a human body, that limb dies. Each part of the human body is nourished by the same life-giving blood that travels from one part of the body to the next. And Paul says, that's the way it is with our shared life uh, in Christ in the church. He says, all were made to drink of one spirit. So being added to the church— Uh, brings participation in the Spirit that indwells the Church. And folks, that's why I am saying that being a part of the Church, a vital part of the Church of Jesus Christ, is important for salvation itself. Salvation is not only something begun in a moment, but it's something that is sustained and nurtured and cultivated and grown up in us by the Spirit, and he works through this community that we call the Church, the Church that has long been likened uh, to a mother nurturing a child. So here's some things that I'll say by way of implication for uh, life at Resurrection Presbyterian Church and how we think of that life. Uh, Number one, friends— Uh, I want to say we as Christians can't expect spiritual growth apart from a vital connection to the church. I'm asserting that, in fact. By vital connection, I don't mean mere membership, your name on a roll somewhere, as important as that is and the place there is for it. I'm talking about time and presence, and participation, and active service, and being the experience of being served by others. That's what I mean when I talk about a vital connection to the church, and I am asserting, my friends, that you have no reason to expect spiritual growth apart from that. That's certainly been the lesson uh, of my 27 or so years of pastoral ministry. Uh, Those in the sphere of the church who are not growing and thriving are inevitably, in my experience, those who are not vitally connected to the life and ministry of the local church. Some time ago, someone was talking to me and asked the question, a question I love to hear How can I grow as a Christian? This particular individual was asking the question. I think it was a sincere question. And my answer went something like this. I'd like to talk to you about personal Bible reading. In answer to your question, how can you go as a Christian? I want to talk to you about prayer. I want to talk about being spiritually mentored in order to grow as a Christian. But friend, this is what I said. I need to talk to you about something more basic than any of those other things. I need to talk to you about the fact that you are not connected to the church You need to be connected to Christ in order to grow spiritually, and that means being connected to his body, which is the church. You have to be present in the congregation. You have to be participating in the work, worship, and ministry of the church. You need to have relationships with others in the congregation. You need to be ministering in their midst. And folks, without those things... Uh, Humanly speaking, there's no hope of spiritual growth. American evangelicalism needs to hear this message today. It is full of go-it-alone Christianity, and I do not presume to be able to know the state of the heart of those who call themselves Christians and have no meaningful involvement in the church. I can't say where that go-it-alone Christian is going it alone to heaven or to hell. I can't say that, but this much is clear. There is no spiritual vitality to going it alone. The life of every member of the body is shared with the rest of the body. And so the life of every member is dependent upon its connection to the rest of the body. So this is why the church is such a big deal. It's Such a big deal from God's perspective and the advancing of his kingdom in the earth and his glorifying of himself in the earth. And it's rightly a big deal to each of us individually and personally because, well, folks, you can't be united to Christ without being united to his people. The only other thing I'll say in connection with this that probably is so obvious it almost doesn't need to be said But if these things are true, and if spiritual growth does come so uh, essentially through connection uh, to the church, I'll just add that choosing a healthy church is fundamental to your own spiritual growth. This, I suspect, is intuitive, but it bears making explicit. I have just a little bit of experience from... Uh, my yard work, of shrubs and various other kinds of landscaping. And uh, they're thriving, or shall we say, (laughs) failing to thrive. And I remember a landscaper friend saying to me when I had a big, big, big project to undertake, uh, he said, Nathan, you get good plants, but don't forget the soil. My own uh, tendency, I think he was anticipating, would be, Pay some money, get some really healthy-looking plants. But it would not have been so intuitive to me to pay some money and get some good soil delivered and to have that installed, mixed in, so that those good plants that are alive have good soil to grow up in. Good soil that is so directly connected to their thriving Uh, In life. Well, that illustration, of course, is what I'm uh, leveraging for the individual Christian, very much alive in Christ. But do not overlook, my friends, the quality of the soil in which you plant yourself as a Christian. That soil is the church community that you choose and you throw yourself into and become a part of. Does that church community have mature and godly leaders? Does it have vibrant worship? and fellowship? Does it show a devotion to the holiness of God and, if I may, the happiness of God? And I could continue this. Uh, class will continue to look at those features of a healthy church. My point here is the church you choose is the soil of your soul, yours, and of your families. Uh, so choose a church well. Uh, because it is a choice that does so directly and profoundly impact your own spiritual life and vitality for the years that are to come. Well, I will have to bring my meditations on ecclesiology, the biblical teaching on the church, uh, to a close at this point, although we'll be returning to some of the practical elements of church life soon enough Uh, Next time, I want to look at that word covenant that I passed over uh, earlier and unpack what it means uh, to speak of the church as a covenant community and the implications that has for all of us, but especially, I want to talk about the implications it has for our kids. But friends, thanks for listening in uh, to this uh, further class in uh, membership at Resurrection Presbyterian Church. I'll let you go for now. Until next time, the Lord keep you. Christ is risen. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us.